Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The Human Voice. As always, this is Bob Hutchins coming to you from beautiful Franklin, Tennessee today. And I have another friend coming to me from right down the road in beautiful Spring Hill, Tennessee, Miss Sloan Scott. She is a longtime friend of mine, a colleague, and you're going to really, really enjoy this conversation, I believe. Let me tell you a little bit about Sloan, and then I'm going to jump right into this conversation. Sloan is a creator. She's a cancer survivor. She's a strategist. She's a social media strategist, a marketer, an entrepreneur. And one of her sayings on her LinkedIn is says, and I love this, I've made a career out of making others successful. She's currently a vice president at the Freeman Company as an experienced strategist there. Sloan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Bob. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited that you're here. And now it feels like we're just sitting across the table from each other, even though we're not. (laughs) Yeah, just across the Zoom from each other. Yes, exactly. Such a a weird time we live in. But hopefully, hopefully it'll just be like you're sitting across the table. Yeah. So Sloan, tell me, or actually tell uh, my listeners a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and how you ended up in Tennessee. Yeah, so the Reader's Digest version is um, I grew up the majority of my life in Chicago in the northern suburbs in Northbrook. Um, my dad was a uh, executive headhunter, so we moved all over the country, but Chicago was always home. Both my mom and dad were from there. And my parents, you know, raised us to be pretty free spirits. So at the age of 10, instead of getting an allowance, my dad taught me how to trade stocks. And so we would sit down with the Financial Times and learn how to trade stocks because he said, you need to learn the real value of money. So that was that was uh, sort of my first foray into to being a little bit different. And then at the age of 13, I decided I wanted to go to Europe for the summer of my 16th birthday. And my parents said, well, you can do it, but you're going to have to figure out a way to pay for it. And at 13, I was too young to get a real job, quote, quote. So the one thing I loved to do was cook. So I started my own catering company called Dinner because it was the only meal I knew how to cook and uh, made enough money to to not only go to Europe for the summer of my 16th birthday, but also help pay towards college. So that was sort of the first minute I knew I wasn't going to have what I thought was going to be a traditional career or what I had been brought up to believe was a traditional career. Um, so. Tried the traditional college route, didn't like it, dropped out, went to culinary school, became a chef, worked in the restaurant and nightclub world for several years and got to travel, which was super fun. And that's how I got to Nashville. So I worked for a company called Levy Restaurants at the time, Mm. and they had taken over the Wild Horse Saloon and uh, asked me to come in and be part of the turnaround team. So they called me. I was in Las Vegas and said, hey, it's time to to come to Nashville. We've got another project. I'm like, Nashville, why are you sending me there? Well, you know, it was pretty obvious why they sent me. In 93, 94, the music industry was just kind of on its way back up. And this is what I call Nashville pre-Starbucks because it was. (laughs) But, you know, it was really starting to come back up. And and it was a super cool experience to work um, in a nightclub like that for a year because we got to meet everybody was in the music industry at the time. So tech, you know, booking agents, managers, a little bit of everybody because the music business was really small at that point. Um, 
So it was super fun. And, and Nashville was just starting to come on the market as a startup market too. We had, you know, a few really interesting entrepreneurs who were doing very interesting things like Marcus Whitney and, and Miami had was starting to become a thing. And there were just some really interesting tech companies. And that's how I made the transition of going into tech. I was one of the, I think it was employee number 36 at Echo Music, which was one of the first companies to sell music direct to fan um, before iTunes. So, and just have stayed in experiences in and around experiences um, in the digital realm ever since. Um, all with a with a marketing back to it. Yeah, that's great. Now, did you have any siblings growing up? I did. I had a younger brother who was also pretty interesting and entrepreneurial. And uh, in his high school and college years, worked for a super cool um, hunting and fishing store in the northern suburbs called Trout and Grouse, hmm. which led him to an 18-year career with Patagonia. Mm. Uh, which he absolutely loved. Um, and I love the family discount. That was great. Uh, <laughs> and then that's what took him to, I uh, lives in Livingston, Montana now and works for some really cool nonprofits on saving, you know, fish and wildlife in Montana. So just mm. me and him. So you've been in the, in the tech, uh, internet marketing world now for quite some time, probably you and I probably same time frame, kind of early right. leading edge. We've seen a lot of changes for you. What, what is that? What is, tell me about that experience being in so early, who you are, where you came from, because you, you, you're not just an employee, but also you've been a business owner, you've been an investor, you've been an employee. Unpack that a little bit for me. Yeah. Sure. Um, so, you know, I think when the Echo Music sort of started that that first piece of it, that was the first foray into it. I had taught myself how to code because I thought that was going to be something interesting. But it turned out that really Echo Music was built on, on the idea of using permission marketing. So if you've ever read Seth Godin's Purple Cow, that's sort of where it all started, right? So it was this idea around you giving me permission so that I could talk to you as mm. simple as that is. And then the data that comes from that conversation um, and the data that comes from any transaction that's a result of that conversation that how to use that data in a, in a responsible way. And so, you know, in those early days, we were kind of breaking new ground. Most people had not done that. They weren't looking at data in that way. So we got to try and test and fail spectacularly at a lot of things, including, you know, just because there wasn't a lot of governance around data even at that time. It was kind of the wild, wild west. And so it was learning what would work and what didn't. We got to do a lot of those early kind of projects. Um, you know, one that that comes to mind that completely ages me, but it's a good story to tell is uh, I worked with John Mayer and the BlackBerry tour. So it was the first um, time that an, a live experience had embedded an album mm. into a phone, which for most of us with our iPhones, we're just used to having all of our music at our fingertips. But back in the day, most people think Apple were the people that invented apps. They weren't. It was actually BlackBerry was the first company to have those. Um, and so this idea that I could 
turn on my phone and all of a sudden a whole album of music would be sitting there. That was pretty, that was pretty interesting. So it was just trying interesting things like that. And then taking that thread through to brand experiences, right. And looking at how does that data play a role in in the brand conversation? So doing some of those early brand and band sponsorship deals, looking at sponsorship and licensing and endorsement, and how does data play a role in those discussions? So, you know, working in and around live experiences for big companies like Salesforce and Cisco and EA and big CPG brands, and looking at how do you bring that kind of, how do you bring that data and how do you use that technology right within the experience realm? Mm. Um, so it's not surprising that I landed back in the experience realm today. Um, but then, you know, left and took a little departure um, and took some of that working knowledge into healthcare. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that I recognized really early was that healthcare had a long way to go in terms of creating meaningful dialogue and using technology to create that meaningful dialogue, not just with each other, but even all the way down to the patient, having been a professional one for most of my life. Um, And what was really interesting to me when I started in in the early days of healthcare um, in the tech side is how inconsistent that conversation was between the type of content that was being put out there in the world and what the actual healthcare company themselves represented. So especially at the C-suite level, you know, that the, the dialogue, the types of content that was being put out and then the tone of the dialogue where there was a big disconnect. And so for me, what I tried to look at there was how do we get rid of that disconnect? How do we create a really meaningful connection between the dialogue that's happening at the C-suite where decisions are being made and the types of content that's being put out into the space, regardless of who the buyer was. And there, you know, there's this discussion now, you know, it was early in the days that we started working on it around creating this really authentic connection between the brand itself and the types of things they were putting out in the world. And healthcare is no different. And I would argue healthcare's got a long, still got a long way to go. Yeah. Um, we're barely scratching the surface. But I think social media, you know, working in the early days of it and seeing how it can be used for good, um, we're kind of on the other side of that now. But seeing how that could be used for good and how you could create a meaningful two-way dialogue, not just a one-way dialogue with, with folks, um, I think... Again, healthcare is still at the the edge of that, and I think still learning. But that, to me, is what you know. One of the things that I've seen. The other thing that I've seen is, is you know, from working in it because we were there together in the early days. It was kind of a spray and pray mentality. Let's just try everything. There was every new kind of technology. Every new channel was popping up. You know, everybody was going from one thing to the next, and it was like shiny ball syndrome. Let's just jump on the bandwagon and let's go there instead of really taking a smart look behind the scenes and saying, well, where's my audience going? You're just making assumptions that I'm going to show up there when in fact I'm not going to show up there. And I think now it's, it's almost gone back to this much more narrower 
quality focus around having, again, that, that phrase I use a lot, which is meaningful dialogue, Mm -hmm. not one that is, that may pertain to everybody, but one that is more personal to you and me. Yeah. I think people, it's easy to take for granted that there are ongoing two-way conversations and multi-way conversations that we have all the time on social media, whether it's messaging on Instagram or or Facebook or texting, but that's relatively new in the Mm -hmm. whole space of advertising, marketing, and communication. This one-to-many type broadcast and, and mass media is what has ruled for the past 100 years but in the early 2000s, with the advent, obviously, of, of texting on phones and social media and Facebook and MySpace, and I was in early in the early 2000s as well, as well. And it's interesting how we both started in the entertainment business because they were the first ones um, that had an interest was because, number one, they were always forward thinking, and number two they had a built-in fan base. And so the mm-hmm. idea of having the ability, it kind of, it sounds kind of funny now to say it, but the idea of, hey, you don't have to just spend your money on putting your artist inside a magazine or on the front cover, but invest in building databases and email lists that you can have ongoing, com- meaningful conversations was really relatively a new thing just, you know, 18, 19, 20 years ago. So we've come a long way in a very short time, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it feels to me, and I don't know if you agree with this, it's speeding up. I mean, and, and I think things are failing faster and because consumers have gotten smarter, they know what they want. They know what they don't want. They know that, you know, time is precious And how they choose to spend it is they're going to pick, you know, spending it in ways that add value to their lives. And so, you know, if it if it doesn't, it's sort of how I like to describe it's sort of the new version of garbage in garbage out. Right. In a way. Yeah, for sure. And. Um, I recently talked with the grandson of Marshall McLuhan, who mm-hmm. was a media theorist who wrote a lot and talked a lot about uh, way way ahead of his time. But his most famous saying is the medium is the message. And he, his theory behind that was that many times the platforms themselves overshadow the actual content or the conversations because they transform us rather than it being simply a written form of communication or a film, but actually we change and it changes us on these different platforms. So you've seen, you and I have seen the, the rise and the fall of many different uh, entrepreneurial endeavors, whether it be in entertainment, whether it be in healthcare, and some of them very successful, as you said, and some of them failing fast and moving on. But as I say that, and I think about whether it's social media today or maybe even what you're working in now and experiences with Freeman, how true or how have you seen that to be true over the past 15, 20 years in the digital space as far as the medium affecting for good, bad or indifferent, not only the message, but the person receiving it and sending it? Does that make sense? 
Yeah, sure does. So, you know, I was thinking, you know, as, as you were starting to finish the sentence, you know, the first sort of thing that comes to mind is you think about Twitter and Twitter is still one of the early platforms that's been around for a long, long time. I mean, they coined being able to say you have 140 characters to say a message, right? right. So they created their own dialogue um, and their own dialect as well, you know, with with the birth of hashtags coming on into the world. Um, they created their own sort of sayings. But you notice that the way that Twitter was designed is so that your message would disappear depending on how frequent somebody was going back there. So you had, you know, seconds, literally, to to be able to understand what somebody else was saying. Otherwise, you're going to have to search your feed. So that we sort of went there. And then you saw the metamorphosis of LinkedIn, which started out as a recruiting tool and still is a very powerful recruiting tool. But fast forward to see what you see now. And it's now really a content platform. Right. Very for business for business, you're seeing lots of people use it for personal now. I think that the pandemic again played a role there. But when Microsoft bought LinkedIn, you saw this real sort of investment in creating a content platform for business and that that's really what it's become. So you watch the sort of metamorphosis of Twitter. Now you're not limited to 140 characters. Now they have all kinds of ways that you can create a thread and those threads can go into a much more extended conversation. Same with LinkedIn. You've seen that. Facebook never used to be and wasn't created for business, then became a big business platform. Now businesses are moving off of it. Why? For lots of reasons, right? A lot of it has to do with security. A lot of it has to do with some of the not so good sides of social media and and how that has proliferated Facebook. Um, It's in the news every day on how that's happening. So I think you know, when you, when you look at the last 20 years, right, a really good example, our C- CEO, Freeman, made a great, he called it the pressure stack. He made this great um, visual, which I'll, I'll share with you. But it shows that in the last 20 years, you and I have watched the birth and death of the iPod. I mean, right there, going back to, to music, we've watched technology that was cutting edge and now it's gone. Right. Um, in 20 years and all the things that have happened. And I think we're going to continue to see from a marketing perspective, from a messaging perspective, that idea around personalization, I think, is going to continue to be a very strong uh, message for everyone because it is about what matters to me. I know and I'm much older now. Um, but I know that I am a lot less active on social media than I used to be. Why? Because it's really important for me to be fully present. And I work in the live experience space again. Um, and there's this huge movement around living experiences, whether that's you personally deciding to live somewhere else in the world and do the work that you do, or whether that's, you know, moving into a camper and giving up your house and driving across the country and and that that's your idea of an experience or whether it's really being very impactful about the types of experiences that you decide to spend your money on. I mean, I think that's all 
those all play a role into this idea of just being fully present for yourself and, and what that means personally to you. Yeah, that's great. Let's let's turn for a second and go down a different road. I know in your bio that I read, it talks about being a cancer survivor. I'd love to, t- to talk a little bit about that story as much as you feel comfortable. What does that road look like for you? You know, it's been interesting. So I was first diagnosed with ovarian cancer at 23, came back at 38, came back at 45, and now it's really a chronic illness. And what I would say is that that journey has been one of self-discovery. I really had to learn how to be an advocate for myself because what I realized is, you know, I was brought up in the era where whatever the doctor says is right. And what I learned is that's not necessarily true, um, that there's a reason that they call it the practice of medicine, because it is a learning skill um, and that each patient is different. And so I had to learn how to be an advocate for myself throughout this journey and still do. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I was so passionate about being able to work in the healthcare business and look at it from the patient experience perspective. So for me, it's something incredibly personal. Um, and I always tell everybody if if money were no issue and I could go off and do anything that I wanted to do, it would be to be an advocate to show people that, you know, you can have a say in the type of care you receive, the type of medication you choose to take, how you choose to live your life, what decisions you make. Um, because it's it's for me, you know, when when you've faced what was once, you know, a pretty life-threatening diagnosis and no longer is, um, you have to make lots of decisions and things that you thought were once important become a whole lot less important um, as a result. And you you become, I think the, the best way to describe it is you, you become really sharp at being able to, to notice what's worth spending time on and what's worth not. So. Yeah. Yeah. So what, how did that, how did that play into your whole career? Because I, I've always known you to be extremely on point, focused, involved in multiple things and really good at what you do. So, you know, on the outside, if someone weren't to know, they'd yeah. have no idea what you were dealing with and struggling with. What, what was, yeah. what was that like? So, you know, a couple of different things. It's a great question. What I would say is, you know, when I was much younger, what I didn't want to people to see is cancer face. So that's actually a real thing. I didn't want people to look at me with pity and sort of go, oh, she's sick, that kind of thing. So even the second time that I got it, I pretty much hit it. A lot of people didn't know that I was dealing with it. Um, and I did it for that reason, because I just wanted to be treated on an equal footing um, with everybody else and not be treated a different way because I was dealing with this life-threatening illness. So I think that's point one. And point two is that I found work for me to be the thing that really kept me going um, and kept my mind sharp. Um, Even in the days where chemo fog was at its worst, what I love to do is sort of challenge myself and read a business book or, you know, listen to some, an audio book, do something that kept my brain sharp so that 
it again, it didn't kind of appear to the outside world that I that I was struggling with it. And so it really became a sort in a way a source of strength for me. Mm. Um and you know it I never looked at it as it was this thing that had me. It was more it was this thing that I had. Yeah. You know, so that that's really how I look at it. Yeah. Yeah. You had said earlier that it came back at different ages of, it of your life. And now it's yeah. more of a chronic thing that you deal with. Yep. What would you say is different about the Sloan today is the 20 year old. And then the second <laughs> time it came back, what were those lessons that you learned along the way? And you don't have to, you don't have to give me a long list, but what were the top one or two? Okay. So that's a good question. One or two. Um, I would say that for me, the two lessons that I learned were the first one was to always put myself first, which may seem like it's a selfish thing, but it's really not. When you're putting your the decisions that you have to make around your health first, it becomes this baseline for everything else. And it allows you to sort of say, is that really going to be in my best interest given what I'm going through? No, it's not. So you know, I kind of went from this person who would say yes to a lot of things, um, just out of curiosity, to this person who really had to weigh out how I was going to spend my time because my health limited that. Um, and it really sharpened the skill of being able to discern um, what were the types of things that I needed to to stay involved in or not. So I would say that was the first one. And then the second one was this idea of, I really became, I I had to early in um, in my career really become an extrovert, but I'm not an extrovert. I'm an introvert. I'm a classic introvert, but I had to learn how to do that Mm. as really a mode of survival because of the industries that I worked in. Mm. Um, And you know, now being a little bit older and a little bit wiser and a little more experienced, what I've realized is I don't need to to do that. I can be an introvert and be just as valuable um, and just as effective at whatever type of work that I choose to do. I don't have to sort of change myself or put on a different face for the outside world to see. I can just be my vulnerable self and, and be an introvert and say, guys, like, I can't do that. The way that I recharge my batteries is, you know, picking up a book or just spending time Mm. um, doing the things that I love. So that's really what the journey has taught me. Mm. um, And to really pay attention to those two things. Yeah, that's great advice. You said earlier about being a self-advocate in that in for your own health care. And, you know, we all know that the healthcare industry is rapidly, rapidly changing and changed and it changing simultaneously. And I believe that COVID and the pandemic has has been an interesting accelerator to a lot of that mm-hmm. because of telehealth and because of you know people having to make do at home and all that kind of thing. What would you say to the person who may not, may or may not be in a situation similar to yours, but who also has to advocate maybe for their own health, for the health of their loved ones, 
you've had a long journey of advocating for yourself. And many people are just starting to wake up to the reality of, of number one, that they can do that. And that number two, they should do that. What would you say to that person who's out there, who's listening, who's like, I can really identify and I want to take control of my life and I want to start advocating for my own health. Where do you even start with that kind of journey? Yeah. So, you know, luckily healthcare has come a long way in a lot of, in a lot of positive ways to your point around telehealth accessibility to healthcare has come a long way. I think what I would say if I was sitting across from someone who's just starting to figure this out is recognize that you have a ton of resources at your fingertips. One, two, trust your gut. It's usually right. That means that there's, if there's something is telling you that something's not right, it's because it is. I mean, healthcare is, has come a long way in terms of transparency. Um, you know, doctors get into the business of being doctors to save lives. So it's, they want to have that dialogue too. So not being afraid to have that, that really honest dialogue with your doctor to say, I'm not comfortable with these things. And I want to have this open dialogue with you and talk about what I need to do for me to be healthy, whether that's a treatment plan, whether that's a lifestyle plan, whatever that is, you don't have to bite off the whole thing at once. You can just start with having an honest dialogue because doctors want to sit and hear that. They do want to understand what are the things that are happening in your life that may be affecting whatever that situation is that you're sitting in front of the doctor for. And even if it's as simple as just going in for a regular checkup, I think it's also really important to share that. And then the third thing that I would say that's really important is, and luckily technology has given us lots of ways to do this, is to document everything, literally document everything. I have every single one of my healthcare records is in my phone. I have my DNR in my phone. I have my living will in my phone. I have everything right here so that if something happens to me, it's a really easy you know, almost transaction for someone in a way. Mm. Um, I would say document everything, record your calls, keep keep notes. Because again, you've got to remember that our healthcare system was built in the 80s and it's being held together with bubble gum and band-aids. Mm. And it the systems don't talk to each other, the hospitals don't talk to each other. You know, it, it's it's technology is is helping move that forward in a positive way, but it's going to take time. So it's really your responsibility as a as a patient to make sure you're keeping track of all of those things um, in whatever way is easiest for you. Some I keep track of everything digitally. Other people might want to keep track in a accordion folder, whatever works for you. But I would just say keep track of all that because it's you're going to need it. And it's, it's important to have that, you know, at your fingertips when you do need it. That's great advice. Sloan, let's pivot a little bit and talk about your work at Freeman and the future of Sloan Scott. Um, ah, okay. What is that? What does the next year or two look like for you? Ah, interesting. Um, so for me, you know, the reason I went back into live events was, you know, during the pandemic, they went away. Right. right. So in, in Freeman's, Freeman is known to the to the outside world as a general services contractor, but they're much bigger than that. 
So the largest events company um, in the world. And one of the things that really sort of struck me when I was going through my interview process is how transparent everybody was about the challenges that were ahead and that live events are definitely back, um, but they look a lot different. Why? Because the attendees are different. We've all been changed for forever. So those things that we used to look at around live events, those trends and benchmarks and things that everybody, they're out the window. I mean, it's completely different. And, you know, it's what I love about Freeman is they acknowledged it and they recognized and were transparent with everybody and said, listen, we've got to rethink this entire thing. You know, what does this actually look like? Um, because it's it's been interesting in even my early days at Freeman. I've been there now, what, 16 weeks? Um, you know, seeing how much companies want to put live experiences back into the marketing mix and that everybody's just exhausted from hybrid and they yeah. don't want to do it anymore. Or they want the freedom of making the choice to do one or the other. Or in some cases, a little bit of both, whatever that means to them. But a really interesting um, fact that came from some early work that was done at the company and, and then shared out with us that I think is super impactful is that experiences have to align with attendees' values and yes. what they hold dear. It goes back, you know, it's very similar to what we were talking about just a short time ago. And so we have to create experiences that meet those values. And it's not just about, you know, writing a contract with the biggest singer in the world to perform at your thing. That's not it anymore. It, it is about much more smaller, more curated experiences, more meaningful experiences and allowing that attendee to see that experience through the things that matter most to them and whatever that, and whatever that is. And this idea around accessibility so making live events a lot more accessible. Why? Because technology made being able to do things much more accessible. And now that we're back at live events, we have to look at how do we extend that accessibility out? You know, how do we make an event impactful for someone who's neurodiverse? How do we make that live event impactful for someone who has a handicap? How do we do that? What does that look like? That's become a big thing. Um, and then sort of the third piece of it, which which I love that this is a thread now that's coming through in live events, is the idea around diversity and equity and inclusion mm. and making a, a experiences open to all yeah. because they should be. And we have to think about them that way. And the challenge of working for a company that's trying to figure that out because it is a value proposition for us as a company. So how do we bring that to life in the types of experiences that we design for our, for our customers? And, you know, the one thread through all of that is how do we create trust? Yes. Right? Because all of those actions are things that build trust and recognizing that we have a great responsibility to, to do that and to see experiences through the eyes of our customers, their customers, and all of that. And then the last thing that I would say is we've seen the collapse of B2B and B2C. There's no such thing anymore. Right. Uh, it's consumer to consumer and how consumers decide, again, to experience whatever that is for them and whatever matters most to them. So it is 
there's no such thing as a B2B event or a B2C event. We are all consumers. We're all doing things in a certain way. So to really think about how do we create events that, that aren't just a one and done, right? That, that stand the test of time because consumers don't just want a one hit. They want an ongoing dialogue. They want to feel an ongoing connection to whatever that is that you're creating for them. So how do we think about that? And we challenge ourselves every day to think that way. Yeah, that's and, really good. And it's been super interesting for me to have exposure to all these different kinds of thinking and then also to think about it and look through it at the lens of, of clients and potential clients and how they're trying to live those values and bring those through to their experiences and the collaborative dialogue that happens around it. So the, the joy of being able to be back in the live experience space is that it's so markedly different now um, and super challenging, which as you all know, that's something I love to do. If it's, it's a big challenge, I'm going to, I'm going to try to take it on. So it was, it was a, it was an easy decision and yet a hard one at the same time to decide what was going to be, you know, the next move, but super happy that I'm here. That's awesome. I love to hear that. You, you mentioned earlier about the B2B business to business and business B2C business to consumer, how that's kind of going away. And I have always, that has always been a pet peeve for me. Um, I believe it's always been an illusion. I don't think it was ever really a thing. I think, Human to human is the way we interact. Um, and yes, there are nuances of businesses talking to businesses, but it's just people using different words. And to get to back to our earlier discussion is, you know, digital uh, and social media and two-way communication has leveled the playing field on almost every situation. And so- yeah. I've been talking to business owners and executives for years who would try to make the point that business owners, executives, businesses don't pay attention or use a lot of the same media that's out there. And the reality is it's just not true. It's it, they we may you need to find what your demographic likes and prefers and what platforms they may engage on. But at the end of the day, human beings are now talking to human beings and wanting to connect, whether it be through Zoom, whether it be through, you know, Snapchat, whether it be through TikTok. Um, we all desire to be seen and to be heard. And so um, whether you're a business owner, whether you're a consumer, whether you're trying to advocate for your health, whether you're trying to represent market for a company, whatever that may be, live experiences, at the end of the day, it's what you said. What was it? Meaningful engagements, meaningful conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Two human beings talking to each other. And, you know, if we can always keep that in mind, I think we can, you know, build a career and and do what's right and good as you and I have done for so long. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the the beauty of it is everything's come full circle, right? I mean, we went through this big sort of, talk to everybody and then it became you know a little bit smaller and a little bit smaller and a little bit smaller and then it got bigger again right with social media and how that's done and now i think it's really coming back down to again that meaningful dialogue that you can have and what that 
you know, what that actually means to you. Yes. So I, w- I would say it's, it's not just the dialogue itself. It's the value of the dialogue. That's right. That, that matters. That's good. Sloan, this has been fascinating. Um, do you do social media if people want to find out and learn more about what you do, or maybe maybe you touched something with them and they want to reach out to you? How can they connect with you? Yeah, the easiest way to reach out and connect with me is on LinkedIn. Um, easy to find, so um, Sloan Scott uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, that's the easiest way for me. I have actually just like I talked about, you know, being purposeful and intentional around how I choose to spend my time. I'm spending a lot less time on social media uh, than I have in the past. Um, and it's great because I'm actually, um, on a quest to read as many books this year as I can. Um, and what I found is that if I can turn this little piece of glass off and I don't have that little app sitting, staring at me that I can, you know, be fully present to do those types. What are you reading right now? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. I'm actually reading a bunch of things, but I will, I will, I will tell you that the one I just started is a book called The Art of Community. Mm. So it's seven principles for belonging. Because to me, I think at the heart of, of dialogue, right, and of of having purposeful conversations, is the community you choose to surround yourself with. And we've been building communities for years, both online and and out in the real world. And now I think it's it's really about how do you envision community for yourself and for others that you want to interact with. So that's, that's my latest read. Just started it. So. Fantastic. Well, yeah. Sam, thank you for your time. I know you're busy and we are excited about what the future holds for you and you're a fighter and survivor. And I so appreciate your story and your life and your friendship. So just keep going. Thanks so much. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. Bye.